and welcome to another edition of the Rabona Podcast. Hello again, I'm Musa Kwonga and I'm joined by Ryan Hun. Very sadly, Michael De Silva, a regular member of the podcast, is indisposed for this episode. We've got a special bonus emergency podcast edition. We'll be talking about three specific issues. The first is La Liga's decision to stage games of theirs in the US from now on. The Super Cup game between Atletico Madrid and Real Madrid. A thriller, uh, by all accounts. And finally, but not least at all, Tony Cruz's statement on Mesut Ozil's retirement from the Germany national team. So, Ryan, hello again. Hey, mate. Yeah, um, I just got to point out, we, Michael's all right. He's like, <laughs> yeah, indisposed. Indisposed sounds. It sounds better. It sounds better. He's going to He's going to hate us. Come on, it sounds. We're better. a man down already. First bonus pod, and we're a man down. We are. We are a person down. But we'll be joined by Colin Miller, the fantastic Spanish sports writer, football writer. Um, he'll be joining us to discuss the La Liga decision uh, mm. very shortly. Um, but Ryan, let's get into very quickly the the game between Atletico and Real because yes. I want to talk about that. 4-2 Atletico after extra time. What does that say about the balance of power, the power shift in Spanish football? Uh, well, I mean, I don't think it's... I don't think it's... You can draw anything too massive Come on, no hot it. takes, surely a hot um, take or two. I think it's... I always find Super Cups are weird games. Right. You know, they're... Um, I said this a lot. I said this on the podcast the other day. I think something was a weird game. But, um, you know, it's essentially... It's a derby, but it's being held right. in Tallinn. So... I don't think you can draw. I think moving think moving a derby tone, that though. intense, kind of. Uh, I mean, just purely f- from the eye test, mm. Athletic looked really good. Right, right, really good actually. Um, Thomas Lamar was brilliant. I thought mm. yesterday. I didn't watch the game live. I watched it back this morning um, because I I would plan to watch the second half and I realised I'd missed too much of it. So, but yeah, so watching it back this morning, Costa was brilliant. Right, and that. I I've never been Costa's biggest fan. As a footballer, he's amazing, but as you know, as, as a, an individual, like he's, I mean, he you know he bullied Arsenal a lot, which uh, right, right, which is probably one of the reasons for that. But his first goal was absolutely incredible. Um, for those um, who haven't seen it, he takes two defenders, two of the best defenders of the world, out of the game, Ramos and Varane. Um, With a flick the ball on, on to himself, he flicks the, yeah, he flicks the header on from a long clearance to himself. Um, and then like beats Varane with a nod forward and then like thrashes the ball past Navas at the near post. From a it's really, ugly. really tight finish. Right, like, right, right. Really tight angle, sorry. And it was all premeditated, wasn't it? It was all carefully, carefully It usually is with right, Costa. Right. I yeah, think, right. you know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but yeah, and it was really good. I mean, I mean, I think Lopetegui's got a really difficult job. I, I, I personally, not that I am a, you know, in a position to be offered the Real Madrid job, but I it's wouldn't have got. I wouldn't have gone for that job. I don't think. But you I can't mean, if, say I, if no I was, if I was, yeah, but if you if you were managing the Spanish national side, pretty decent job, right? And you know, Lopetegui's, you know, he's not a a very well established club manager, right? So, I think there would would have inevitably been time there for him to 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 get that job at some point. I think stepping into the job after a guy who's won three Champions Leagues in a row. Brutal. There's only one way that can go. I just, I just think with that job though, when Real Madrid come calling, you have to go. You have to. When they come after you, it's like you know, if you're Gareth Bale, if you're Gareth Bale going to Real when Ronaldo's still there, 
Yeah, but it's Real Madrid. And look, they get a favourite new player next year and then it's not going to be you. Yeah, but we look, had, look at, we had this conversation about what, Lukaku turned them down and Bappe turned them down. So, you know, when they do come calling, you don't necessarily go without... I'm going to do this all season, oh, by no, the way. No, I'm going to be like... Point. No, it's a fair point. I think you'll do but, this. I think... It's, look at like someone like Frank Ocean, right? Frank Ocean, <laughs> obviously... Sorry for the pop reference, but someone like Frank Ocean is so good. People always want to work with him. And maybe Lopetegui's choice to take this job, it reveals a slight insecurity as in, I know I'm good, but maybe I'm not as good as the others and they're not always going to come back for me. Maybe it's that to an extent. Yeah. I mean, I always, I always tend to steer clear of power shift talks in derbies because derbies are such... Um, anomalies a lot of the time anyway you know what I mean and 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 there was times you know you've seen it in when Manchester City were far poorer than they are now that that it's hard to draw conclusions the only reason I'm, the only games. reason I'm drawing conclusions about it, the only reason I am is because it's clearly a result that meant a lot to the players oh it's massive and, and this is yeah. the reason I say it because you look at Atletico this year and they are going to be very dangerous domestically they strengthened they bought Gelson Martins I think from Sporting Lisbon in the fire sale of all the players leaving uh, obviously Thomas Lamar has come along and they've got Kalinic um, from AC Milan as mm. a backup to Costa I mean that is a <laughs> well I think the thing that they, they've they've been so um, hard to break down over the uh, under Simeone I think the thing that they've got this season which is a little different is that they have genuine creative flair Firepower, going forward right, yeah. and and numbers now you yeah. know Saul's a year older um, and even though he's he's a little bit of a uh, like a deeper deeper player a lot of mm. the time he doesn't necessarily go that far forward, mm. but he's looking really good he and does, he has been yeah. exactly. I mean, his goal was absolutely superb last night. Like right. just well, two players, him and Cocker. You know, Cocker is a player who is more defensively minded. He scored as well. And actually, let's just throw this in too. Atletico scored four goals last night when well, no, a couple of nights ago, and. There was no involvement from Griezmann. Yeah. Griezmann went off fairly early. So that's four goals without your primary striker, which is, you know, pretty impressive range of goal scoring. Yeah, I saw it. I'm going to try and bring it up. There was a stat about um, the last time Real conceded four. And I think it was, I think it was only other, I think they did it once under Zidane. It never happened on him, right? Or it never happened. Was it pre-Zidane? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can't remember. Sorry, I should have been more prepared. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think, but also... You know, Modric didn't start the game. Um, there was a lot of players on the pitch that had come back early from holidays. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was a really, it was a great result for, for Atleti. I think it was a good, um, a, I think they needed that result a lot more right. than Real Madrid did. I mean, apart from maybe Lopetegui, I think he right. could have really done with a, with a, with a performance. I think but, it's, the, it's definitely the first time Atletico have beaten Real Madrid in any final. I'm pretty sure that's that's true. Yeah, or uh, was it something since '91 or something? Maybe I think when they beat him in a copper. Copper, really? Copper. I think. Yeah. Back I made that up again. Sorry, please correct. Don't, don't no, at no, me. no, please. Well, please at me, actually. Audience and, members, uh, can... please correct us. And you know, those who are uh, anyone who Sorry. does correct us will get a uh, a like of their tweet from me. How about that as a promise? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but look, La Liga very entertaining already on the pitch. Hmm. Let's do a quick segue to La Liga off the pitch. Yeah. And we'll be joined by Colin Miller. Yeah, shortly. Yeah. Um, f- f- from Sevilla to discuss the implications of sp- the Spanish FA's decision to stage games from La Liga. Yeah, this is really worrying. And right. I don't want to kind of, uh, you know, sound too 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 doomsday-ish, but I think this is a, a very, very worrying 
um, development in terms of the future of European football. And right. this is something that um, we touched a little bit on on the podcast on Tuesday where Michael, I think, brought up uh, Arsene Wenger's quotes about how the the European Super League is ine- inevitable. Mm. And the gap that we were talking about, the gap between the top teams and a lot of European leagues and the rest. I think it's undoubtedly um, a measure to to try and bridge the gap between the TV money of the Premier League and the TV money of of um, La Liga. There was a thing I clocked before. So for example, I think currently the US TV deal for La Liga is done by BN Sports and it's $120 million a season. Hmm. Um, whereas NBC's current Premier League deal is $1 billion for six years. My goodness. So... I mean, it's not a huge amount more, but it's, it it's a lot. It's, significant, it's, significant. But that is just one of many huge, huge TV. I think right. the current Premier League TV deal is ten billion in total, or ten and a half globally, including the UK and right. and worldwide. So, and it's a problem that they've had in Spain for a long time. You know, there was um, the gap between the top and the bottom in terms of TV rights money. The ratio is is just it's huge, and uh, I think uh, it was there was something like. You mentioned Almeria getting sort of about a tenth as much as, well, maybe a fifteenth as much as there was, um, I think, Barcelona. So I think in 2014-15, um, Barcelona and Real Madrid got 140 million, where Almeria came away with 18. Right. So if you think that the commercial revenue is already huge right. in terms of difference, then you have a 100, and I'm going to do some maths now, 122 million a year difference between the top and bottom side. In the Premier League, I think the ratio is one5 or one five four to one, right? One point five four to one, I should say. So it's still more, but obviously it's Almeria would be a much bigger piece of the pie if they were in the UK. Yeah, frankly. and you've seen it. You've seen how rich the Championship clubs are now, right. and even some clubs who dropped down to League One. We had the, um, that really famous thing last year, or the year that Burnley were in the Championship and they were richer than Ajax. You know, this oh, is that's Ajax who have won multiple European Cups and have provided the blueprint for much of modern football. One of European the European superpowers or historical superpowers um, can't keep up financially with a club that got relegated from the Premier League and is in, you know, a small, is a smaller club. I don't want to kind of disrespect Burnley, but they're a smaller club in a right. kind of, you know, they're not in a, a major European city. You know, that's, that's worrying. There's a, there's a stat as well. Someone referred to Leicester as a small club and it was the same year they had a bigger turnover than Roma or Marseille. Well, this is the thing. The definition of what a big club is now is just, is gotten. Right. Because, you know, I was having a conversation with someone a while back and they had no idea that, that Aston Villa had won a European Cup, for example. Wow, okay. You right. know, that's and you compare that to, I don't want to kind of bang on about Arsenal, but you compare that to Arsenal's European history. Mm. That's massive. You know, and Nottingham Arsenal, Forest as well. Nottingham, Nottingham Forest. Nottingham Forest, back yeah. to back. Yeah, right. You know, and wow. um, Celtic. And then you've seen Celtic struggle to get through. Well, they they lost to AK Athens, Athens AK, yeah, yeah. you know, in a Champions League qualifier. It's worrying. It's really worrying, and 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 it's something that I don't. I I can't see how it's going to end in any other way apart from you're just going to get the gap is going to get wider. Right. This European Super League is going to become inevitable at some point. Um it'll whether the champions league stays the same or it becomes this kind of european league and then domestic competition becomes completely secondary in all counts cups leagues yeah. what have you um 
but there was one thing we we kind of mentioned with we'll, we'll touch on with Colin, but how how they're going to structure this as well? Right. Is it going to be an extra game, uh, or is it just going to be one game in the fixture that that a team will have to play? So maybe a team will lose a home game, or a team will lose an away game, hmm. or like a marquee weekend where they have like a kind of you know super soccer Saturday or Sunday. You know, yeah. kind of, you know who knows? Who knows? And and. And but the thing is, they quote a lot, a lot of the time the the you know U.S. sports, but the NBA and the NFL are completely different beasts. Mm. Um, you know, the NBA they they do games in London now, and they've done games in Mexico, um, not regular season games, but that's an eighty-two game season. Yeah, where some teams will play each other four times a season. The, the impact the NFL of one, though, the NFL can be sorry, you know, the NFL they're very clever because they often have games between teams that aren't really contenders, if you've noticed that. Mm. So I went to see, I think, I can't remember, I think it was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Buccaneers. played against the Chicago Bears. Jay Cutler, my goodness, he stank out the joint um, at Wembley. I went to that game a few years back. Quite a few listeners might have. But, but again, with the NFL, yeah. sorry to cut in, but yeah, they, they don't play each other twice a season. So they right, have right. no home game and away game. Okay, It's right, drawn. Right, right, right. So, you know, when you play, when you only have two games a season against the club, and one is home and one is away. Right. You remove one of those and it is in a... It, it, the format of league football in Europe, that is huge. As a decisive factor in the league. You know, you're right. You're right. And in a, tight, in a tight league, we could see this game or these games, whichever they are, being decisive in a title race. And, and then we would have a clear case of the tail wagging the dog. And um, you see the, the conspiracies that fly up in Spain, right. especially between Barcelona and Real Madrid right. now, if they want to move a Clasico there and it's... The Classico that would have been at the Bernabeu, right? You know the amount of like conspiracies that, that every, like basically for those who don't know, and I assume you probably all do, is Real Madrid fans and players assume that all the refs are biased towards Barcelona and vice versa. Right, absolutely. So if the league makes a decision to move the Barcelona Classico, then you just I just don't see I cannot it's see how this works yeah yeah um, but maybe this would be a good time to bring in Colin bring in Colin the man on the so, spot yeah the man with the knowledge of Spanish football on and off the pitch so yeah let's let's get Colin And now here to join us to discuss La Liga's decision to play one game per season in the US from now on is the wonderful Colin Miller joining us from Sevilla, I believe. Yes, at the minute I am Sevilla. Yes, so um, listen, listen, it's, it's, it's lovely to be on. Thanks for having me. Our oh, pleasure. So, Colin, what are you up to at the moment? If I can just a quick recap of your current activities. Well, at the moment, I'm sort of floating in between uh, London and Sevilla. Um, Sevilla's sort of been my home for the past 18 months. And I've been in, been in London a little bit for work purposes as well. And uh, I mean, I, I, I largely report on Spanish football. And right. at the moment, I'm actually I'm actually writing a book um, about oh. football in Seville in particular. So between the sort of rivalry between Sevilla and Real Betis and wow. all that goes with that. So um, I've been keeping very busy, as, as you can imagine. But um, can we get uh, it, it, can we get how you want to be? Sorry, Colin. Can we get an advanced mm-hmm. preview of that when that's done? Because that sounds amazing. Yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm willing to promote by any chance. What a pro he is! He came straight in. He was always marketing himself. Yeah, that's Colin, one of my that's one of my favourite football rivalries. Yeah, so. it's fantastic, and the food as well is well, well, be amazing too in the region. 
yeah, no, it's, it's an amazing city. Um, whenever, whenever you're here, you just you feel incredibly privileged. And and I just think it's it's, it's the one it's the one to report in general as well. You know, it, it, it almost sums up everything that's great about Spanish football, in, in my opinion. And uh, no, I, so I, I just thought I'd like to document it and to go through the history and, and just explain why why it is the way it is. So so yeah, that 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 doesn't do me and yeah. So hopefully that all comes together. Well, fantastic. Well, listen, we just had a great sort of exposition of why Spanish football is so great because of the region it's in, you know, the, the regionalism of it. But we've now got this kind of globalism in the game. We've got La Liga going to the US. I mean, how do you feel about that? Isn't that, isn't that, is that going to be bad for the culture of Spanish football? Well, I mean, in, in my in my opinion, it, it, it's something that has actually. When I saw the news, I was pretty shocked by it. To be honest, I mean, I think everybody was. Whenever you see that there's this elite football league has taken the decision to move some of its league games to to not just another country but another continent, and there's absolutely there wasn't any dressing up of it. To be fair, you know, the the, the, the statements from the league and from those involved are clear. Like this is a money-driven opportunity. It's the increased sponsorship and marketing, and it's to drive more people towards these clubs as a brand rather than as a club or as an institution. So what what has happened is La Liga signed a 15-year deal with a company called Relevant Sports, which is headed by Stephen Ross, who I'm I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's the billionaire owner of the NFL team, the Miami Dolphins. And he's also been the guy that's driven the International Champions Cup, um, the the friendly tournament that tells tells the world, the world mainly in the US, between the sort of top um, European continental clubs in pre-season and he's the guy behind this and um, you, you know it's something that's been common in a way in yes. the sense with the International Champions Cup I mean we've seen we saw the first uh, Classico play there last year and that was the first play outside the and I think it was 26 years since 1991 and um, these are the little bits and pieces and and another another hugely influential figure behind this is the president of La Liga, he's called Javier Tabas, and he's he's a very outspoken figure um, who doesn't let's say he doesn't shy away from controversy or from mm. upsetting upsetting fans. Um, he, he called this a groundbreaking agreement, which I suppose it is. I mean, you know, it's, it's certainly a landmark deal. Um, Tabas, he's, he's a guy who he views himself as a as an innovator, you know, he's a bit of a trendsetter. And to be fair to him, you can see where he's coming from. He, he, he's trying to build up this market for the Spanish League, the Trump right. Premier League, the Trump Serie A, which have traditionally been the two two leagues which have attracted the, the largest number of fans from abroad. But he's kind of reshaped La Liga over the past um, number of years that he's been in charge. He He's the guy that's behind the sort of the TV schedules as well. And there's been a lot of sort of fan protests regarding the Friday night, Monday night kickoff times. And, um, there's just the fact that it's, uh, it's probably familiar with it in a sort of typical La Liga weekend. There's, there's very rarely are there any games that overlap with each other, all spread out over separate times. Yes, for TV but purposes, he, yeah. He has, yeah, so it, it's it's to ensure that the big this is you know as many games are televised as possible and and they're broadcast in as many countries as possible and that's that's the reason behind why in recent years as well the Saturday well in the UK the Saturday three pm times obviously four o'clock in Spain those those games are put on at those times and in the past few seasons been Real Madrid Atletico Madrid or Barcelona have been have been prioritised for those time slots now the reason for that is they're trying to appeal to the Asian market in particular particularly the Chinese market. Uh, which, which I think there's actually more La Liga viewers than Premier League viewers as opposed to 
sort of Korea and Japan and, and, and the other nations around that area. So he's tried to nail down the, the Chinese market and to try and spread out a little bit from there. And obviously a lot of these late night kickoffs that are in Spain, and you have to remember as well, these, these might be kickoffs in Spain, a lot of them go past midnight. But, this, so but the thing is, Colin, I mean, all I can, all this, this all makes sense on a kind of financial level. It all makes perfect sense. Yes, but then you yeah. think of the human element, you know, and you sent a tweet out, which I think is part of this wider conversation. Uh, you mentioned yeah. the severe Barcelona Spanish Super Cup game taking place in Tangier in a stadium that really wasn't fit for purpose. And the fans were very angry. And, you know, the thing is, the Spanish FA got the viewing figures that presumably wanted out of that, which is why they did it where they did it. You know, so they were happy on a kind of like macro level, but the fans, you know, the fan experience, I hate to see, you know, sound like it's a cliche here, but that's, that's going to go missing, isn't it, to some extent, if we keep, if we keep going down this road, if we just keep pursuing yeah. the dollar or the euro yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a totally, a total erosion of fans' rights. And I mean, I mean, I'll just sort of explain about the kickoff times there. I mean, they have upset fans. Um, there's been protests, but they don't care. And, and the reason they don't care is that they know the fans ultimately will want to watch their club. Uh, especially if they can get to the stadium, they will, but they'll watch it on TV if they can't. They, they know that they are people who they can rely upon no matter what. And that is why, well, that, that, that's why they aren't, they aren't listened to and, and, and in the sense that it's logical that they should be listened to. And th- there is another element that, that should probably be explained in that in Spain, the fan culture isn't quite the same as it would be in, let's say, the UK or in the Bundesliga in Germany, whereby, you know, you always have, or you usually have packed out stadiums, you have fans week in, week out. But there's a myriad of reasons behind why it's not the same in Spain. Partly it's because of geography and the mass distances between clubs is simply not possible. There's also very limited awareness um, ticket allocations for clubs. Right. The prices are reasonably high to kick off times and everything else. There's also a culture of pennies and you know watching it with your supporters club rather than going to an away game. So there's all this behind it. So they have seen fans as this sort of expendable kind of like they're gonna be they're gonna be here no matter what. They've taken them completely for granted. Now it's the same in other leagues too, but this is I mean as you said it, it's another it's another step and you, you referenced the Spanish ship a couple of times here. A stadium that clearly had absolutely no right to be hosting such a match. Um, mm. And Sevilla even released a statement after saying, like, the, the, the Spanish FA said that they've spoken with the clubs and they confirmed this. Well, they didn't speak to us. And, uh, and as a result, the main fan groups of Sevilla boycotted the game. The Bears for the Ultra Group and the main Penny Federation just said, look, we're not, we're not involved with this because this is just, this is a decision which is disrespectful to us, it's disrespectful to the club and everything else that goes with it. And I mean, there was videos emerged afterwards which showed the insufficient facilities at the stadium in terms of people queuing up and having to climb over gates to get into the, into, I mean, it was, it was almost like something from the 70s or 80s. Right. You, you know, you know, it, 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 these images which just, seems so out of place not keeping in the modern world but this so nobody really understood the decision to play that match in Morocco but I mean as we've seen it's just the, the slow casual erosion of of the sort of traditional venues the traditional way of doing things I think this is a step too far um, I think fans think that as well but I mean as we've sort of discussed I mean how, how much do they matter? Right yeah and I think that's actually is the kind of this is maybe a touchstone, you know, the Tangier game uh, and the La Liga decision to go and play in the US. It's all of a piece. And I think it's part of a conversation that's just set to run, um, not only this season, but for maybe a few seasons to come. 
Yeah, Colin, can I just cut in quick? Sorry. So um, with the the decision to to move the uh, some La Liga games to the US, I, I mean, I tried to look, but there hasn't been any sign of whether that how many games that will be, whether it will be one, whether it will be multiple. When I mean, they, the only thing they seem to say is that they're looking to start that this season. Do you have any yes, idea? Yeah, do you yeah. have any idea about what they're looking to do there? Um, I mean, the, the, the statement does come across as deliberately vague. They yeah. do say that they they want to, to ideally to, to start this this season. You know, which is incredible. Really, they release a statement well, on the on the eve of the season kicking off to be like, well, actually, this year is going to be we're going to try and get games not in Spain, even whenever the <laughs> the uh, the calendar is being released. It is it is in that sense, it's absolutely insane. And I think a few media media sources have tried to find out the answer to this. They've contacted the league. And they've essentially had a new comment. And an interesting element of this is you can kind of draw a parallel to the Premier League plans of a decade ago now, um, mm. of Richard Scudamore, whenever he tried to be like, you know, we've got this, this big idea, the 39th match that we're going to play abroad. And eventually, I think that was vetoed by um, Seth Blatter's FIFA, ironically enough, at the time, being like, Look, this, is, this isn't going to happen, it's off the table. And his response was, okay, but this will happen when the conditions are right. And so we fast forward 10 years on to now, and, and, and Spanish Federation have obviously considered that, you know, the conditions are now right. The, the, the one, the one, um, little thing I would put up against this is that FIFA haven't actually released a statement about this. There has been nothing to indicate that they have been directly consulted or have given any sort of approval. Now, that's not to say that they won't because that rather is no longer involved. It's obviously a different regime there. And let's face it, FIFA aren't exactly the this sort of vanguard of fan rights um, a lot of the time. Mm. And I wouldn't be really optimistic that they will, they will put up a fight to block it. But it just seems so odd. I mean, the, the, the sense I get is that they want to maybe, if they, they, they would be optimistic to get one game this season in the US. Um, so that would sort of be, that would sort of provide them with the, the kind of guinea pig, if you like, to, to go on in future seasons and maybe have two or three games. And all the reports point that it will be, be on the grid in Barcelona will be the two clubs involved for obvious reasons of sure being the most marketable entities as they see it. Um, but I, I think eventually they're, they're going to try and um, they're, going, they're going to try and spread as much as possible. And, and the other thing is, it's been a very interesting statement released um, by the Spanish Footballers Association, and it essentially reads, as per usual, La Liga has dispensed with the opinions of the players and has taken actions that only benefit them, regardless of the health risks to the players and even less the feelings of the following masses of the clubs who are being forced to compete in North America once a season. And it ends by saying. Footballers are not currency that can be used in business to only benefit third parties. And I think that statement speaks volumes of how footballers feel, of yeah. how fans feel, of how everybody feels, other than the people who have taken this decision. Um, but certainly it, 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 it's deliberately vague to the point where it can't be directly questioned in terms of specifics. But I think it's fairly clear what we're, we're going down here. Yeah, I mean, to me, the first thing that I thought when I read the statement was, there's no way the clubs have voted on this yet or there's no way the clubs have been consulted because yeah. it just, it was so vague and you're trying to figure out what games they were used. Like for example, me and Musa are both big NBA fans. And you know, when you're dealing with something like the NBA, which isn't just a round robin home and away, you play each other twice a season, you know, they, they've started experimenting with games abroad. They had a couple in London, they have one in Mexico, but mm-hmm. they usually between 
people in the same conference or even division, which means that they play each other four times a season. So the importance of that one specific game within an 82 game season is minimal, you know, whereas with something like Premier League or La Liga, when you only play teams twice um, or you only play each other twice, home and away, <laughs> like for example, going to how, want the classico. How, can we be brutal? Let's be really honest. They're going to want the Classico because Ronaldo's gone now, right? So to get that thing sold out, to get that that ma- that match sold out, they're going to say, "Look, bring me Messi." I can imagine them being like, "Bring me Messi." Barcelona are the biggest ticket in town now that Ronaldo's gone. That kind of dichotomy is gone to an extent. But between- one of the best things about the Classico, as right. someone who isn't doesn't live in Barcelona or Madrid, is seeing a Classico at the new Camp or at the Bernabeu. Right, right. I agree. And if you take one of those elements out of it, the stadium, it just it's just not the same. I would agree with yeah, that, actually. Yeah. I would agree yeah. with that. Colin, uh, and sorry, it's, sorry, it's, Colin, it's interesting about, sorry, just interesting about the NBA um, comparison there because right. Tabas, the, the league's president, he has cited directly the NBA and the NFL of the playing games outside of their own environments, as he calls them. So he's like, well, why, why, why can we not do that? Why can the Spanish league not do that? And it's important because basketball is such a massive sport here in Spain. Like it's, 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 it's probably the second sport to football. Yeah. Uh, they, and I think a lot of the time they... People try to sort of take elements of each sport, they apply it to the other in terms of the how can we develop, how can we improve, and you know. But it, but this is about this is as, as, we've, as we've spoken about this is especially and specifically about a brand. It's not about a sport, but it doesn't fit into the sporting sense or objective or the sporting nature of a league. When when it's a round robin. 38 game season, there's going to be clubs will directly lose out. Even if it's just one match, those two clubs involved and their fans, their players, everybody involved is going to lose out. So the league will almost by definition be unequal and unfair. And I just, I cannot comprehend how they thought that this was going to work I and how it will work. I, it'll, it'll be, in, a, in one way, it'll be fascinating to see what they actually do with it. But on the other, you're sort of like, well, it's only going to be losers in this process, you know. Yeah. Do you th- sorry? One more question before I forget. Do you do you do you think this is? I mean, it's been well publicised the the difference between the TV money in La Liga and the Premier League, and and well, the Premier League and everywhere else. Um, the distribution of the te- the TV money in the Premier League has, you know, the ratio is a lot closer than it has been in La Liga historically. Although I do believe they signed a new deal last season or this year, if that's correct. So the the, the gap isn't so wide. Is that right? Well, uh, theoretically, yes. Um, the new deal, uh, uh, the devil's in the detail a little bit. Uh, it's quite a complicated yeah. um, mechanism. But but yes, I, I think it's essentially the, the sort of uber classes, as it were, of Spanish top flight will be given a little bit more. Um, but, but but essentially what happens is the new deal is signed significantly more in total and top clubs will still be far and away out, out, out from the rest. It's going to be an incredibly imbalanced league. But, you, you know, if you, look, if you look at this decision of, of where, where football is going in general, I just think it's just so significant. And I, I, I mentioned as well a potential European Super League whereby the sort of cup format of the Champions League will essentially be be merged into, into a league for super clubs. I don't see how that's not going to happen at some point. Um, certainly within the next 10 or 15 years, it just seems increasingly inevitable with all the, all the noises that are coming from football authorities and how they're just becoming ever closer to, to, to commercial companies and the money-making facilities. It's, it, it's hugely worrying on one hand to see just how quickly things like these 
like ideas and concepts can take off and just the sense this could happen as soon as this season, which is essentially underway already. It's um it's certainly something that creeps up very quickly. Yeah, I and mean, we were actually talking about this on the podcast the other day, uh, the last podcast we did on Tuesday, which is why we decided to actually do this one today because it seems a little bit spooky that it happened. Yeah. It was the first real. It feels to me like this is the first real significant step in the direction of a super league. There's always been you've I mean, I have this theory that I've been banging on about for a bit where, you know, the when as soon as the Cup Winners Cup got taken away and it was just became the Europa League and the Champions League, that this was the way it was going to go. And you're seeing how the split in domestic leagues between the top one or two or dominant forces in Spain and France and Italy compared to the rest of the things. But now this seems, I mean, the first thing I did when I saw that was just, th- it was like, oh. Can I say this as well? I think that Sepp Blatter, weirdly enough, is going to emerge as a moderating force in global football for all of Blatter's problems and all the issues with him, which are well documented and absolutely very real. If you look at Blatter, Blatter's a guy that didn't want the World Cup to go to Qatar. And Blatter's a guy that didn't want the 39th game. So this is someone who actually understood fundamentally, <laughs> you, know, even, you know, even for Blatter, like, this is going too far. This is eroding the fan experience. If that makes sense. Yes. Because Infantino... No, I, I, I totally agree, yes. Infantino, yeah. he's up for anything. He's up for anything. This guy is, mm-hmm. you know... So do you have... Uh, Colin, do you have any ideas of what, what games they will want? Do you think they're going to force for stuff like the Classico? Or do you think they're going to maybe run like, um, you know, like a one weekend of the season there eventually or something like that? Because it does... I mean, you know... Uh, if I... If this plan happens, it's... You know, I, I doubt you're going to see like, you know... Girona Alaves or something like that in, in New York or something, right? Yeah, um I think El Clasico will be will be the ultimate um goal for them to, to move out abroad. But 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 I think they might have this they might have some semblance of self awareness to to do this as a as a kind of baby steps process at first. I, I imagine that the that the easiest um, logistical games they could test over would be say a Real Madrid or Barcelona home game against let's say a team who had no uh, mid to lower half of the league right. which might not have the highest demand among fans and which they can maybe sell as a look you know we're going to do this it's going to it's going to drive up whatever <laughs> well, well actually you know I don't know how they're going to sell it but they, they were, they're going to have to but it'll be the easiest to do if this game is low demand that it might be a sort of a, a given as it were for the big club to win in any case it's like well the visiting club might look at it it's like oh well what do we have to lose you know, like this, you know it, could, it could actually have benefits for us I don't know I, I would imagine that's, that's the most that's the easiest uh, logistically for, for the league to pull off but again I, I actually think that by saying we're looking to do it this season I'm not sure how realistic that is I think they might be saying that from the off and then when it when it turns out that that isn't going to happen that they could be like well look that's what we said and we have kind of Right. It's an opening gambit, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's like all these things. I mean, you look at the kind of International Champions Cup and the 39th game suggestion. I think these are all kind of like testing the water really, aren't they? Um, And a process of attrition. Um, Colin, so listen, I've kept you for plenty of time actually already. Um, Thank you so much for that contribution because I mean, it's it's been an education for me primarily, but I'm sure for the listeners too. Um, But before you leave us, can you give us an idea where we can find you? Because... You've basically given us, I mean, it's an incredible sort of like sweeping dissertation on, on the current issues of Spanish football. So where can we find more of your work? Um, well, usually I'm most active, as it were, on my uh, on my, my personal uh, Twitter account. Oh, and right. the handle is 
at Miller underscore Colin. So it's at M-I-L-L-A-R underscore Colin. Fantastic. And I, 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 I talk about a whole, whole, whole range of issues in there, but I, but I try to I try to focus it in on, on football and obviously particularly Spanish football. And I can imagine that there'll be quite a lot to come <laughs> over the <laughs> over the coming season with, with the myriad of um, controversy both on and off the field. Um, it could, could be quite a season. <laughs> Well, it'd be lovely to have you back, actually, Colin, because I think you'll be a big hit with the listeners in this podcast. Um, but also just, yeah, just great to hear your sort of take. I mean, we obviously hadn't spoken before today, but um, for me, it's been an education, but also a great pleasure. It's been an honour to have you on. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, that's, that's very lovely. It's lovely to have you on. Thanks very much. Thanks, Colin. And last but not least... Tony Cruz has come out with a statement on Mesut Ozil's retirement from international football from a German national team. And it's fair to say the comments are fairly, <laughs> fairly controversial, um, fairly spirited, fairly frank, as we've come to, express, uh, come to expect from Cruz on and off the pitch. And um, yeah, Ryan, I mean, let's, uh, let's just get straight into it. So Cruz has come out and basically said that Ozil is a player who's got, you know, distinguished history at this level, mm. um, had a fine career. But his retirement was not entirely befitting of the player that he was. I mean, what what the precise words have you got in there? Can bring um, I've got some of his his quote here. Basically, Meza is a deserved international, and as a player, he deserved a better departure. And this is Kroos's quotes in Build, which is a tabloid paper in Germany. Um, but the way he resigned was not in, in order, he says. And what else did he say? The parts in his statement that are rightly addressed are unfortunately overshadowed by the significantly higher amount of nonsense. I think he knows very well that racism within the national team and the DFB does not exist. That's the key line for me, that right. last one. Interesting. Because I think a lot of the rest of the statement can be down to, um, you know, we have this conversation a bit and we brought in basketball quite a lot in this show already, but um, European footballers aren't used to talking about issues like this so much right? with a microphone in front of them. Mm. Whereas if, you know, the NBA, it's a very kind of like progressive league, coaches, players often talk about issues like racism, social injustice, yada, yada, yada. So part of it can be down to maybe him not articulating it in the right way. And, but, you know... I think we're slightly generous to him there. We I, are, I, I, I we think, are. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I'm a straight white guy and uh, I am not feeling very... I wouldn't feel very confident if three white, straight white guys from like Manuel Neuer, squad, Thomas Muller, Neuer, Muller, Kroos, yeah came out and said, no, this is, this is actually fine. Mm. Because I think for a lot of straight white people, massively, I'm, I'm being very general, uh, general here. So, you know, I mean, speaking from my own personal experience, I think it, we've, we've had conversations about this over coffee and stuff before where I think that a lot of what happens gets missed mm. and you can try to understand as much as possible, but you can never fully understand what it is like for minorities in situations like that because you aren't exposed to those kind of like microaggressions on a daily basis. You know, Tony Kroos... Oh, so when we say microaggressions, I suppose <clears throat> what you mean is sort of like provocations or or acts of disdain. Yeah. But not just that, but I, I think actually we can talk about straightforward <clears throat> aggressions. Like, you know, Meza Ozil had to deal with being called a goat effer yeah. by a leading German politician. Yeah. You know, Which is, is something the, that, that Kroos... You know, Kroos, Neuer... Neuer, I mean... Noise a little bit different because of just where he was born and brought up. But, you know, Kroos and, and Müller, they're Bayern boys. Mm. They're white German Bayern boys. Mm. You know, 
when they lose, they're still white German Bayern boys. So the kind of, I suppose you're saying is the backlash that they would get is disproportionate. Well, the, the backlash... Their is heritage is never going to be brought into it. You know what I mean? And this is the thing, like, this is a common thread that has gone through football that has been raised a lot recently. Mm. Lukaku, prime example. You know, when I win on Belgian, when we lose or I don't score, I'm the Belgian from, I'm the Congolese Belgian or the Belgian from Congolese descent. Same with with the thing in Ozil's statement, when I win with German, when I lose Can I, Turkish. I want to get into the Cruz thing. So I think there's some aspects where I agree with him and others where I depart from him quite significantly. So Cruz talks about Ozil making a statement where most of it's nonsense. So I think if you if you say that, you've got to spell out the parts that you think are right and that, mm. aren't, that aren't right. Um, he makes a comment elsewhere, Cruz, about the fact that Ozil could have dealt with this a lot sooner, referring to the photo he took with President Erdogan just before the tournament and before the Turkish elections. He could have dealt with this photo situation much earlier and he didn't. And I think he's referring there to his frustration and that of other players in the squad, it seems, that Ozil didn't come out, didn't attend the the press day when yeah. the controversy broke. So basically had a lot of like Ozil's teammates having to answer for him. And that must have created some resentment because they're preparing for a big tournament. They're defending the World Cup, which is, as we know, is historically very difficult for teams to do. Most make don't get, most teams that win the World Cup don't make it out of the group stages after yeah. winning the, the following the following tournament. Um, there was I think there was a lot of frustration from Cruz there about Özil's management of the situation. Um, well, I think it, I think I think and I think he's fair there. I think know? that's I th- right. I think, I think that's I right. Think that, that's right. I, I think, think that I think it's key to we didn't really. I mean, this story is kind of blown up. We wouldn't be talking about this if we hadn't read this today because it happened while we weren't doing podcasts, but. I think that it's very key to stress here that the two things are separate, in my opinion. Right. Um, I think you can be critical of Ozil for posing and right. posting the picture. You can be critical of Ozil for not addressing that sooner. But that doesn't mean that the treatment and the language and the reaction to him during and post-World Cup is in any way justifiable. Right. Do you know what I mean? Um, and unfortunately, we spoke with Uli Hesser about this during the World Cup and just after Germany got knocked out before Ozil announced, well, I mean, he hasn't technically retired. He's just announced that he stepped away. Mm. Um, and he said that he he wouldn't be surprised if Gundogan and Ozil didn't play for Germany again. Right. And at the time I thought, oh, wow, that's that's heavy. And um, But he was totally right. And I think that's because unfortunately... Germany is in a very different place politically now than it was when they won the World Cup. Right. You know, when they won the World Cup, it was it was pre the the big crisis in Syria. With well, I'm not sure if it was pre the crisis, but it was definitely pre um, the arrival of the arrival yeah, of of, of, of refugees and refugees, asylum right. seekers. And that that act has, has massively shifted a lot of the discourse in Germany, and. And Turkey has also become much more authoritarian in the last, well, much more yeah. visibly authoritarian. The political in the last landscape across years. Europe has completely changed. Right, right. You know, um, and I think it gave people a scapegoat right. to vent a lot of issues through or funnel a lot of issues outside of football through. From a football point of view and from um, an issue in terms of how young German footballers or German sports people or just Germans. Mm identify going forward i think the repercussions of this are going to be huge if you are for example a 15 year old german footballer right who is going to play professional and you have 
parents or grandparents not from Germany, so you're first or second generation, if a guy who was instrumental in winning Germany a World Cup played for Real Madrid. One of the greatest playmakers in German history. Yeah. And was five-time German player of the football of the year in the last six years. If he isn't German enough... Right, no. and I think I think that's what I think that's what Cruz was sort of struggling to def- was was rushing to defend the sense that look how diverse our team is. Look at someone like Sami Kadira, and it's funny because Sami Kadira, you know, someone of I think Tunisian heritage, yeah. came out at the time of the controversy when it was at its height. Well, I, well, I say its height, its previous height, it's gone higher again now. I think um, Kadira came out and said, "Look, Gundogan and Özil know what they were doing when they posed with Erdogan, and they know how to sort it, how to solve it." And they might hold out, you know, someone like Cruz might hold out someone like Kadira and say, "Look, this is a guy who's integrated, who gets it." Um, look, I. I'm, I'm Can I, sorry, sorry to touch the no, button no, no, there. Can fine, I just, yeah, before, sure, because sure. in case you move on to another point, but on that on that note, there was, I think again, it's just really hard to come at, I think sometimes from mm. being from, from a straight white male perspective, because I'm not Turkish. My family's not Turkish. My family don't live in Turkey. Right. So if a figure like that says, hey, you're from Turkish heritage, pose with a picture for me, as in yeah. Erdogan, We've, Rafa Honigstein made a really good point about this in an article he wrote where you saw it with Enes Kanter who again another NBA reference mm. he's an NBA player Turkish very outspoken against Erdogan and the regime in Turkey um, had to flee whilst he was on holiday in, in, in Asia um, and I think he was flying I think he was going through Romania had his passport cancelled by Turkey you know because of it because of his statement against Erdogan yeah, yeah. so if you have yeah, for, uh, I mean, it, yeah, it was very, very, uh, it was very ill-advised. Do you know what I mean? And it's mm. not. And um, so but, the repercussions. But, 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 have, I suppose you're saying the repercussions of having family in Turkey. It's maybe it may, maybe not. It's maybe not as easy to say no as it may be for you and I. Do you know what I mean? I just think I. I, I still think I get that. I just think that that's giving Özil the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think I, I love Özil as a player. We, we you know as he's done tremendous things. I just think that his position became untenable from the moment he handled it badly. I think the first 72 hours after the story broke, if Ozil had come out then and said, you know, had made some kinds of comments about it, then I think it would have been easier for him. But then I think subsequently, if you look at someone like Oliver Bierhoff, who actually, Ozil says, was quite supportive during the tournament, afterwards throws him under the bus and comes out with quotes that basically are kind of almost like German nationalist talking points. You know, Bierhoff comes out and says... Ozil had a very bad World Cup and implies that's because he wasn't committed to the team, to his country. Whereas, you know, the stat about Ozil creating, you know, more chances per 90 minutes than anyone else in the tournament. Mm -hmm. And Ozil actually against South Korea didn't have the worst game of the attackers, was actually one of the better attackers in that game. Yeah, I mean, I have like, I think this is again, I think the DFB handled it so badly. I think so, So, so badly that I think that escalated the issue. And actually, I think that they could have worked a lot closer. And I don't, actually, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to say that they could have, because I don't know how closely they worked with Ozil, but from an outsider's perspective, who has no insight into the workings of the DFB or how it was handled, it seemed as though everyone could have been on the same page. I almost feel like Ozil was naive about the extent to which... Totally, totally. And this is, again, what we've yeah. said a million times. It is very, I'm not, I'm not for one second defending Ozil in, in the initial action, but I'm defending him in the, the response, which I see as two separate things. For Cru- yeah, for Cruz you know. to come out and say, 
you know, because no one ever said there was racism in the German national team. That was interesting. That was never an allegation that was made. Erzl never at any point said that other players in the team had any kind of... No, it was specifically in the DFB. It was funny how Cruz would mention that. I thought that was a bit weird. But the DFB, you know, and Grindel in particular, the president, that's where he had the issue. And I feel like... The issues were specifically with Grindel and uh, specifically with the fan that attacked him after the game um, and called him Turkish, whatever, this, that and the other. And the language used by the politician when the squad was announced. 20, I think it was when the provisional 25-man squad was made, it was... A leading German politician said we 23 see. Germans and two goat effers, which yeah. was Gundogan and Ozil. Yeah. Which is that kind of insult for like sort of Turkish working class. So that's the kind of, you know, the assumption. Yeah. That and, like, then he ins- yeah and then he suggested Turks that he should go back to a certain part of Turkey, which is well known for having immigrants. So it's, and you can't people, justify, you can't yeah. justify and people that. Have to under, people have to understand as, understand as well, because, you know, we're, we're broadcasting from Germany, from Undisclosed location in Berlin, <laughs> Rabona Tower, as I call it. You know, people have to understand the intensity of the political debate right now is such that the Minister of the Interior, Horst Seehofer, recently said, oh, well, I'm not sure it was Seehofer, he said, um, there is no place for Islam in Germany. I mean, that's an extraordinary, I don't think it was Seehofer, it wasn't Seehofer, but a, a leading German politician said that there was no place for Islam in Germany. I mean, that's the level of the discourse. Imagine the Home Secretary in the UK saying that. Which actually, I mean, we've got Boris Johnson now, so we're kind of going, we're going that direction at the moment. We're well, I just think that, 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 I mean, we're, this is maybe something we should say for a more specific podcast, but right. like, I think that the quality, if you like, or the level of discourse, you saw it with, you've seen it with Sterling. Right. You've seen Sterling, it with yeah. Pogba even, you mm-hmm. know, and you've seen it with a lot of the French national side in, in bits and bobs. There are pockets of people and politicians around Europe who don't like integration. and right. And... I think that it's very easy to put that aside for those people when you're winning or when your Belgium striker of Congolese descent is banging in 25 goals a season. Right, right. But, you know, can you imagine if, for example, Giroud was of Senegalese descent or something in the World Cup and didn't score, Yeah, you know, before they won the trophy? Mm. I just think, yeah, I think there's a sensitivity issue with the handling of it. And I think at this point in Germany in its sort of political trajectory, there needs to be greater sensitivity. You're going to come out on the record and make a statement like Cruz made. You've got to basically like be a bit more empirical and lay out where you feel the issues are and be more nuanced about it. But listen, on a brighter note, on a more rousing note to end the podcast, hmm. Zinedine Zidane. Uh, Next United manager. Floated, <laughs> his name is being floated in connection with Manchester United. Uh, look, but can I just, this is not really about... We're delving into speculation. We, well, we, we are a gossip we are, but podcast. Look, but look, but look, we are a gossip podcast. Extent. Come on, like, it's a football are podcast. We? To, well, to an extent. We can, we can, look, we, we evolve like Pokemon. We, we're many things. We, we what contain, have I done? We contain multitudes. Um, this isn't about United per se. It's about Zidane. And the question of really, like, how good a coach is... He's an enigma. How mm-hmm. good a coach is Zidane, really? Yeah, well, there was that amazing thing that was floated around when they won the third European Cup. And it was... I can't remember who wrote it now. So I apologize for not giving them credit, but it was something like, I'm going to have to explain to my grandkids that Real Madrid won the European Cup three years in a row whilst not actually that good. And Zidane won three Champions Leagues in a row whilst actually maybe not being that good a coach. Which is a bizarre it's thing bizarre. to say out loud, but right? It's and Didier I, Didier I can already... Thing, uh, it? It's the Didier Deschamps thing. Like, how good is Deschamps? Like, people still won't know, but I think the key is this. The answer is this as a motivator of men, of, of, of footballers, 
Zidane and Deschamps are obviously superb at that. Because if you look at that World Cup and the youth of the players in Deschamps' squad, Deschamps found a structure that was secure enough for them to express themselves. If someone like Diego Simeone had coached the French squad, right, mm. would have said, amazing job. Yeah, like, well, I think this is the thing where we're, we, the thing about Zidane is the honest answer is we just don't know. Because I think that the, the skill set you need to uh, manage that Real Madrid dressing room mm. is very different to it's a lot specific, of other clubs in Europe. You've seen with Rafa Benitez, unique. prime example. Rafa Benitez, we were bigging him up on the podcast the other day, done an incredible job everywhere he's gone. The worst period of his career was probably Real Madrid. Right. It's a very different skill set. And I think that the the thing with the, there is so much quality in that Real Madrid dressing room mm. that it's almost that you need someone. Zidane is perfect because he is half of that, team would have idolized him when they were growing up right you know and, he, and he's very hands-off isn't he and he's but he's been in that position and, and he can Venter, still yeah. and he can still meg people in training right that's a huge thing that's a huge and factor. that brings to people of that elite level that's that it's brings humbling. them down a little bit yeah, yeah it's, it's really massively important. humbling yeah that's yeah. a great that's a perfect way to put it you know you're seeing that maybe with Lopetegui mm. like can his skill set translate to that dressing room you saw it with Emery at PSG undoubtedly a very very good manager done an incredible job at Valencia incredible job at Sevilla did alright at PSG to be fair alright yeah he did but right. it's an anomaly there's it's an amazing an moment no- it's there's, the half time of the team talk um, the half time team talk that Zidane gives when Real play Juventus in the Champions League final and he's just basically saying pretty standard stuff he's like Marcelo maybe advance a bit more you do this do that we're going to win the second half we're one all we're gonna, and it's it's nothing profound, but the point is, it's Zidane saying it. And this is a man who's won Champions Leagues, who's won, you know, the World Cup, who's, and you look at him, you're like, well, if he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Then you go off and do it. And I think that's the thing. I think what Zidane needs, I think he's a great head coach, mm. but he also needs a very tactical number two and an incredible sporting director. And if he gets all of that, then he's wonderful. I, I mean, we're in a very similar position to where we were with Guardiola, where you just don't know. I mean, there was a lot of people when Guardiola left. Barca, who still were like, I was different because I could yeah, see. Yeah, what I mean, done we, we, I mean, you could see. Like, I'm saying that a lot of people were like, would use the oh, he had Messi, mm. or he had all this, 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 you know, and anyone could win with that kind of team, mm. and that's a similar thing that you could maybe point out with that Madrid squad, even though they didn't win the league. But, you know, it's still a, it's not a bad squad, right? Um. I think the thing with Guardiola was that he made such gigantic stylistic shifts yes. and you could see football being pushed in a new direction right. that it hadn't been pushed before. Real have no legacy in a sense of, ta- whereas, they've got no tactical legacy. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas Zidane hasn't redefined or re-engineered like Real Madrid's football structure right. in terms of their style and identity in the last three years. Because to be honest, their football in style and identity over years and years and years, certainly as long as I can remember watching Real Madrid, has just been to sign the biggest players in the world. And then to win. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas, and then, you know, Guardiola, you go to Bayern and then to City and you've seen how much he has changed things. Yeah. And yeah, he spent a lot of money, but unfortunately, I think that the players that you need to fully understand what he's trying to tell you and to implement that, I think they cost money now. No, that's absolutely right. And so, think, yeah, yeah, I would actually personally love because I love Zidane. I would love him to go to Man United and win the league. Do you know what I mean? And actually, I would love him to be a really good manager. 
but you can't necessarily see. But we just don't know that. We don't know. Yeah. But I think actually, maybe think about it. What clubs in the world would you compare to Real Madrid? Man it's, United are probably the closest comparison. They and actually, I would say if if they if you went to a club like that and not to get too much into United because they're my team and I don't want to sort of make that into kind of you don't have to you don't have to caveat that. Well, no, time, no, no, Russo, but, because, but I, you know, well, you're not you're not you're not a biased. You know, well, I just think I don't want to like, you know get too. Past he's it. not here, so I can talk about him. But Michael's yeah. the most biased. Ha 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 ha! I saw him the other day when he jumped to Spurs defense. Michael's going to kill us. Um, I just think with yeah the thought of Zidane at United, I think he's one manager for whom the owners would be persuaded to really open the coffers. They'd be like, we've got a marquee manager. Let's spend significant amounts of money. And we'll say to him, look, long-term development or buy players that are young and just bring the best out of them. And I, I do think if someone like him went there with the right kind of recruitment behind him, it would be a major coup because there'd be players who would crawl on hands and knees to play for Zidane. Yeah, there, for you know, sure. In that, and that dressing room would, I mean, we're kind of like assuming that Mourinho has already gone here. But, it's a possibility. In all say, all this is a hypothetical, is a as I, you know, to clarify. Yeah. But um, I think that, I don't want to slag Mourinho, but I just think that you, you take him out of that, that dugout and you put Zidane in there and the whole atmosphere in the dressing room just shifts completely, 100%. Pogba, Pogba has just won the World Cup for France, you know, and he's playing under a guy who won the World Cup for France last time. And, Zidane and the only time before Zidane him. comes in and says, look, you're going to win the Ballon d'Or. You're like the best, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, from a neutral, it would be mega fun seeing Zidane in the Premier League. It'd and, be intriguing, wouldn't and it? And really fun at Man United as well, because it's, it's only going to go two ways, I think. It, they're either going to... And it'd be, nice a a, neutral, it'd be nice to have a better looking manager than Guardiola in the dugout as well. I think that's important too. I think, you know, I think Zidane was the first male model for L'Oreal. I think he's the. I think that's the first. Really? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a handsome man. I think it's about... I think Guardiola's had it a bit too much his own way in terms of like the good looking ones. He's kind of out by himself at the moment, really. What's your, what's your beef with Sam Allardyce? So on, on that on that rousing note, <laughs> before this becomes the big Sam cast, uh, we're going to get so much hate mail. We will get so much hate mail. Uh, Ryan, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. And um, you, man. Thanks for the emergency edition of this podcast. Yeah, we'll uh, everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and for staying with us. Um, please follow us on social media on all channels. We're at Rabonamag, the same handle everywhere. And yeah, let's. Um, we'll catch you soon. Maybe was it next Monday? Next Monday. Next Monday. Catch you soon. See you later.
love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 